joining us today for this episode of the Public Health Networker. In this episode, we continue our conversation on data visualization for public health. We've been talking about GIS, and today we're talking a little bit more about big data and data analytics in order to modernize and reimagine public health systems. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Meg Schaefer of SAS. She is the National Public Health Advisor at SAS, and she is also a consultant epidemiologist for the Iowa Emergency Operations Center. So we hope you enjoy this conversation as we talk about the current challenges and the future of epidemiology and data analytics. Talk also about public health burnout and the importance of public health professionals to find some time to reflect and rest and regroup during this challenging season of public health response. As a public health professional, if you're feeling exhausted and burned out, we'd like to invite you to an upcoming event next Wednesday, June 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific time. And it is a self-care workshop for public health professionals. We've created this space for people to take time for self-care, basically a power break from public health services to renew your energy, strength, and focus. In this workshop, we will work virtually to relax and let go of the stressors that we're experiencing and go through some practices to renew your well-being. The workshop will include a self-assessment practice, a relaxation meditation, and a journaling exercise to provide a restful space for healing and renewal. So join us for a power hour for self-renewal and self-care for public health professionals by visiting publichealthpodcasters.com events. On the events page, you will find the link to join us. JMIR Publications is proud to support the Public Health Podcast Network and our shared mission to create an inclusive and robust scientific discourse. With over 20 years of experience in open access publishing and innovation, JMIR believes transparency is paramount to successful research and for public interest in science. Our growing family of journals includes titles such as JMIR Public Health and Surveillance and our flagship, the Journal of Medical Internet Research. For a limited time, listeners of the Public Health Podcast Network are eligible for a $100 discount using the promo code PHPN100. To learn more about us and our journals, please visit jmir.org. Thank you for joining us today for the Public Health Networker. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and today we're going to be talking about epidemiology and um, data and all kinds of great things. Today we're speaking with Dr. Meg Schaefer. She works as an epidemiologist and an epidemiology consultant. She works for SAS. She's been there for two years at SAS, but also as a consultant, she has actually 20 years of experience as an epidemiologist working for the Iowa Emergency Operations Center. I have school boards, churches, healthcare centers, and multiple businesses. So we have so much to talk about with Dr. Meg Schaefer today. And so welcome. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Schreier. Thanks, Dr. Moreno. I'm happy to be here. All right. Thank you. So please tell us a little bit more about your role uh, currently at SAS and um, any other work that you're currently doing with epidemiology. Sure. So I've been with SAS for about 18 months, and my formal title is National Public Health Advisor. But the great thing about my position is I get to do a wide swath of things. So I work with state and local public health agencies, county agencies, cities, and even other countries like Canada, Spain, Singapore, 
And all of my focus is on modernizing and reimagining public health systems. I think the pandemic brought us a lot of lessons, whether we wanted them or not. But one of the things that it's really pulled to the forefront is the need to hyper-focus on technology, if anything, to prepare us for the next pandemic. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. I love that you're working in this field of modernizing. And it also sounds like an element of creativity and strategy Mm -hmm. uh, in healthcare processes. So I'm just really excited to hear more about your work. And again, thank you for joining us today. So tell us about, um, maybe if you could just tell us a little bit more um, as it relates to like SAS and and the kind of um, activities that they've been having you work on there. Sure. So at SAS, and as I said, in my role as National Public Health Advisor, one of the first things that I did in coming to SAS, and especially drawing from my experiences, you know, spending 10 years at the State Health Department here in Iowa, working as an infectious disease epidemiologist, and then throughout the pandemic, I realized some of the massive limitations in our data structures and how our data were architected and how we analyze and engage, visualize, and tell stories. So I got into SAS technology in you know, this is by no means a sales pitch because I've used every software system out there, Mm -hmm. but I was so happy to find that for the first time ever in my statistical lifetime, which is fairly long, I could do everything I wanted in a single space. And at that point, I was really all in on, okay, now I need to figure out relevant, applicable, ways to show our public health partners how to use this technology. And it might not be that SAS solves all problems, but SAS has a huge footprint in public health. And I think in a lot of ways could be better used, could be expanded, could intersect with other technologies and could get us to that point where we tell those stories about all of the incredible things that public health does, which we do in supporting saving lives in preventing illness, and really just walking alongside people throughout the progression of the healthcare continuum. Tell us, how did your public health journey begin? Uh, Tell us about what that's been like for you over the years. That's a great question. And I love reflecting back on it because I feel so fortunate to have some of the experiences that I've had. Uh, When I moved to Iowa, it was not my first choice of places to move. I was raised in St. Louis, but I think it was very fortuitous that I landed here because the value of being in a smaller population state is you get exposed to everything. You get to do all of the epidemiology things, but as an undergraduate, I was putting myself through school working as a nurse's aide, and I interacted with multiple female doctors, and I had always thought I would be, you know, down the pre-med path. Mm -hmm. And two things happened when I was an undergrad that changed my direction. One was I had a a academic advisor, probably ill-advised, who told me I wasn't smart enough to be a physician. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't believe I was receiving that feedback because I think it was more a byproduct of someone who was trying to work two jobs and put herself through school. That was really hard. So maybe my grades didn't always reflect what I was capable of, but I was determined. And then, like I said, in working with these female physicians, I saw 
um, prolonged lack of balance in their lives and a real confinement to the structure of medicine. And I realized way more than what that advisor told me that this is not for me, that I still wanted to do something in the sciences, but something that was more compassionate. Mm-hmm. So I pursued microbiology. I fell in love with infectious diseases. Um, It's such a weird thing to have a passion for, but I'm so fascinated by the disease process. So got my bachelor's there, got a minor in immunology, global health studies, and then went right into public health epidemiology. And I think it's so funny now, like, you know, when you're six years old and you're thinking about being an astronaut or a doctor, like nobody said, oh, I want to be an epidemiologist. Like nobody knew what that was. Right. Now everybody knows what an epidemiologist is. And I think that is a tremendous thing. And that there are a lot of women in epidemiology, which is clearly a passion for me. So I moved into working for a county health agency and I got to do all crazy things from catching wild cats in a trailer park for rabies testing Mm -hmm. to the first specimen collections for West Nile virus. And that was very interesting as well. Um, And then, you know, other things that were more challenging, especially as a young epi, like talking to someone newly diagnosed with hepatitis C before there was treatment about what that lifelong disease meant. Um, working investigations, outbreaks, cases of measles, and leveraging some of the tools that I think people are kind of scoffing at now, like isolation and quarantine. Well, you know, EPIs have had that in their toolbox for a really long time. And, you know, we, we use that with care and use those tools to try to prevent the spread of disease for a multitude of reasons. Um, then I moved to the state health department and worked under Dr. Patty Quinlis, who I consider one of the best mentors I've ever had. And she is an MD, MPH, and really knew statistics, but also infectious diseases. And I was the state's influenza and respiratory pathogens coordinator. And again, in Iowa, you get to work at all. So I worked measles outbreaks, the mumps epidemic of 2006, and college students. Um, I worked novel cases of swine influenza in humans, and I was a heavily agricultural state in the intersection of ag and people, often results in disease transmission. And then uh, also the H1N1 pandemic, which I did forecasting work and investigated every single case of fatality. So um, you want me to pause there before I talk a little bit about the last 10 years? Because that's the first 10. <laughs> yeah, I think we can talk a little bit now about the first 10 that you've talked about. There's just so much there. You've mentioned several, quite a few themes that I do want to address. The fact that you you mentioned um, caring about people is something that you you know, was part of your personality. You wanted to, you know, do something that you cared about health, you cared about the health of others. So you considered the pre-med path and then kind people don't say unkind things to people, you know, hurt people tend to hurt people. And so in this field, as we talk about mentorship, you mentioned now the theme about mentorship, you had one of the best mentors you've ever had. These are the reasons people thrive in their workplace, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you know, these are the themes that emerged when you were talking about your first 10 years, you know, when we're younger and we're impressionable, we're still looking for options and answers and what the future looks like and what our um, colleagues will look like, who they will be. The, the last thing we need is someone who speaks kind of like, you're not capable of doing this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, it's so hurtful. And I mean, these people need to stop. <laughs> they just do. Um, we, we need to change the culture where that's not acceptable. I mean, there's just many other ways to say something, right? There's, yeah. there's no, it's not necessary to say that you, you're not capable of this entire whole field of something, mm-hmm. you know, in Iowa, it sounds like you've had this wonderful range of opportunities and experiences. And um, even what we're hearing and what we're seeing is like, when you get these opportunities as a, you know, let's say like if someone is unmarried, they're single, they're young, Mm-hmm. Um, and they're able to travel somewhere for a job. These mm-hmm. small, smaller town uh, public health opportunities may be the best thing for them. They are. They're enormously beneficial. I do think that having the characteristic of being curious and being willing to jump in and do the work, and by the work, I mean do whatever work needs to be done. You get a tremendous amount of experience and people respect that ethic, that work ethic. But yeah, it results in you getting this wide swath of experiences, different diseases, different people, you know, different approaches that, that really just form in your mind and, and make you an even stronger asset and stronger worker in the future. When you work in a smaller town, it's just like there aren't as many people around to do all the specific mm-hmm. things. There aren't that many departments. So you are all the departments. Correct. Yes, correct. Tell us more about uh, the most recent experiences you've had in public health mm-hmm. now. As I was finishing up my doctorate, I'd say in my mid thirties, I guess around 2015, I was working actually in managed managed care and Medicaid, another semi-altruistic profession. And I thought I could help support people who truly need the benefit of basic health care, which I believe is a human right. Um, That was a really eye-opening experience and also exposed me to a lot of good technology. But then when the pandemic hit and I had finished my doctorate, I really missed epidemiology. I missed that science. I missed talking about diseases and using that knowledge. And so I was asked by the County Emergency Operations Center here in Des Moines, which serves the 26 county region, to help provide some insight, forecasting, interpret information, help them synthesize information. And I jumped right in without hesitation. It was very easy. Yes, But then I also took a step back too and thought, okay, how can I form not just this engagement, but what I can probably expect to be a longer term engagement with multiple people needing assistance into something more formal. So that's when I formed Aperio, my statistical consulting firm, and named it, formalized it, you know, set it up in a strong way so that as I moved through future engagements, I wouldn't have to think about the logistical stuff. You know, like I have contract templates and, you know, all of the right documentation legally for that business. And so that is a tremendous source of pride for me now, having a big body of work that I can attribute to that consulting. I started working with Polk County and actually we're we're going on two years of working together. Mm -hmm. And I I just have to compliment this group because I know there are other groups like this out there that even though if you look at the broad stroke of the politicism of our state right now, it looks like we are not pro public health. Um, It looks like the actions we've taken have actually gone in the other direction and have opposed some of the things we know in public health work. And that's true. But there are 
groups of people who are very focused and have made tremendous progress in fighting this pandemic. Polk County is one of those. You know, whether it be taking my information, asking questions, asking me to examine the positions of other scientists to see what the truth really is, and just making sure the public is informed. Those have been our goals. And we work every single week. We used to meet once a week, and now we're, we're working through reporting, and we don't have to meet once a week, which is good. But we've seen the hospital systems, they now all talk to each other. They meet regularly. They talk about their challenges and issues. We meet with law enforcement, with first responders, with the board of supervisors. So you have this huge collective of people that as we've seen the pandemic ebb and flow and change, we engage the people who need information, who need support, whether it's our school boards and one of us attending school board meetings to helping them develop policies, to adjusting mask guidelines for our first responders when there's new variants, to sharing information about science, to help promote vaccination and making vaccination accessible. So that is, I wish, I wish the public could see all the things that groups like Polk County does, myself included, because I think they would see things in a much different way. This theme, and it's so important, and it's um, something that we need to continue to discuss right now, it is Mm -hmm. how to do public health in these strong, I'm using the word strong, (laughs) um, political climates, right? The political climate is just very, it's thick right now. There's a lot Mm -hmm. that's going on. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot going on. Heard a lot of stories about burnout and things like that. I guess I would love for you to share with us, what is some advice that you would give to somebody right now who is in the field of public health, who is dealing with these um, strong political environments. This is a really tough time. It is not a situation I ever imagined public health would be in. So my advice is what I'm trying to do myself is that we have to we have to not give up, but we have to give ourselves space to recover. We have to give ourselves space to process. We have to know that it's okay that we don't win. Uh, every battle. And I think we have to know that it's okay to not have to fight every battle too. Um, Right now, I'm intentionally creating some space for myself to just refocus. I love the work I do with SAS. I just finished writing a textbook on zoonotic influenza. And I, I need to just have space to do things that don't require my intellect, you know, whether that's running or hiking or just watching a silly TV show that recharges my mind. And I think we've got to make time and space for that. And then that can help equip us for what we need to re-engage because these fights are not over. I mean, we still have to fight against vaccine aversion, not just for COVID, but for all vaccines. We will still continue to have surges of COVID. Right now we have a massive North American outbreak of avian flu in our poultry. We have a lot of things that we are going to have to continue to fight, but as individuals, we've got to care for ourselves first. Even before the pandemic, there was there were challenges as it related to vaccines, but it seems a little stronger these days. It's an overwhelming response, in my opinion. When I see pictures of people who show up to legislative meetings with dolls, with a bunch of needles in them. I, I know that those people clearly don't 
have the capacity or understanding of the true science of vaccination. Right. But I also feel like if you could see what these diseases have done to children, to babies, to entire populations, you would change your mind. Or if you had to send your child to a place where those diseases were highly prevalent, you would also change your mind. And there are a multitude of studies that have shown the safety and effectiveness of our common childhood and adult vaccines. There's no doubt about their efficacy anymore. So to assert personal choice at the jeopardy of societal health, I don't understand that rationale. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why someone would choose to be, frankly, inherently self selfish in that respect, because you protecting yourself protects other people, whether it be your children, your loved ones, your parents, people who can't protect themselves. So why wouldn't you do that? Right. And I hope people will hear that. I mean, you know, some people just don't have the energy or the interest in hearing anything new from people. Mm -hmm. Um, They trust only a certain few people (laughs) for all of their information. And they just, that's all the capacity of interest that they have in learning about something. Um, Some people don't like learning new things. Some people, they're done after high school. Seriously. Some people are like, are you addicted to school? Like I've been (laughs) laughed at me because I go to uh, further degrees, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you must be addicted to school. You don't need all that education. And then there's people who attend churches and they're like, I only follow what my pastor says. Right. And so there, there is definitely that um, where you're just like, I'm like, what do you think of this though? Well, you know, pastor says this, I'm like, no, no, no. What do you think of this? this I just trust what my pastor says. So there, there's definitely that. And that's a huge barrier to address and to get through. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's a lot more outreach that needs to be done. And actually that's one of the reasons we exist as a public health podcast at Media Network. How can we be more creative? How can we build more outreach and public service announcements and things like that through the power of podcasting and other types of media, equipping public health professionals to more creatively share these messages. So it's a big one. And I think, you know, that's one of the important uh, reasons for why we exist. We emerged last year during the pandemic as well. So um, this is one of the key reasons that influenced and motivated our existence. I'm glad you exist and thank you for your work. Thank you. Tell us, a little bit about um, what some of the um, epidemiology, I believe, has so much capability, but there's been a lot of compromise. Like if we think about the type of data that the CDC has been sharing with relation to COVID reports and warnings and precautions, there's a lot there. But what are some of the accomplishments and challenges of big data for public health mm-hmm. epidemiology? I mean, I think CDC is probably an excellent use case for that. So there's a reason CDC isn't located in Washington, DC. It needs to be a separate and distinct body. And there are a multitude of some of the most intelligent, experienced scientists at CDC, more so than any other organization in the world. And Everyone who works at epidemiology outside of the United States acknowledges that. There is a high amount of respect that comes from what CDC has done over its many decades of existence. But what has happened over time, especially as it pertains to data, and the same thing exists in our state agencies, though on a smaller scale, 
is we've one-off funded or funded problems and situations, but we haven't funded the agency. So we haven't said to CDC, build a data lake for all of your engagements with state and local health departments. They're doing that now, but prior to now, they've operated with 700 plus different reporting systems. So if you, for example, work in infectious disease, then you probably report into six or seven different separate and distinct reporting systems to get your data to CDC. There's one for HIV, one for STDs, one for tuberculosis, one for lead screening, which obviously isn't an infectious disease, but still falls under the same program often. Uh -huh. And then all of the other diseases. Right. I mean, can you imagine how Herculean the effort is going to be to pull that together? So that's my first comment. We have to start funding agencies, not issues. The other thing that I, I'm seeing glimmers of, and SAS is trying to support too, just from an advocacy standpoint, sustainable funding. Sustainable funding and for states to recognize that they've got to support this financially and from a resource standpoint too. So it's, and it's not just funding, it's, it's people too. So I'm starting to hear about some states and I was actually approaching this too, thinking about a long-term statistical data governance plan. So how do we raise the bar at the state level, build a better, stronger, more agile workforce? And then how do we create the data foundation for them to be successful? Well, again, I think you fund the system and you make sure the system is going to be supported for a long period of time. Where I see you know, SAS and other companies intersecting with this, and we're trying to have this meaningful approach too, is let's think about all the things that we can do, engage with our partners and talk to them about, okay, this is where you're at. These are the things that you say you wanna see in your future, but let us also share some of the things that we see other folks doing or that we've tried ourselves at SAS that can bring you even further. And that collaborative discussion is usually really productive and exciting. Tell us what we have to look forward to for the future. Absolutely. So I'm working on three major initiatives. So public health modernization and reimagining public health is obviously my primary focus. So I've built a lot of collateral around that. But one of the things that SAS can do that I don't think a lot of people know about is we can do case management along with big data management and be that one-stop shop for analytics, for advanced statistical analyses, for coding, for non-coders, and visualization. So we've built out a prototype for infectious disease case management, but it could be used for immunization registries, cancer registries, you name it, within state government. Again, all in one collaborative working space. And that is so phenomenal to me. I just, I can't even tell you. I mean, that takes you from... As an FBI, I used to work with three different systems, you know, be Excel or Access, then SAS or SPSS, and then mm -hmm. I'd have a visualization tool. Yeah. SAS can do all of those things in one. And so I think that's remarkable. And the other two areas that I'm hyper-focused on are getting a better handle on forecasting zoonotic diseases. I think this is an area where we've seen, let's see, over the last 18 years, three new to people coronaviruses originating from animal sources, mm -hmm. and now a, a big emergence of avian influenza, high, highly pathogenic strains 
in the US and globally, and the cases in humans are changing too. But all of the reports and the data to obtain that information are published in PDF documents by multiple organizations. So we're trying to work with the CDC Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics and other really critical partners like USDA APHIS to make this information accessible, aggregated, insightful, and to get to the point where we're forecasting and predicting these situations, not responding to them. I think that's a pie in the sky goal, but I think it's possible. So, I mean, ideally we can get to the point of no longer playing catch up on what's going on and being more proactive and Mm -hmm. uh, modeling, definitely having more preparedness for such things as the current pandemic. Yeah. And SaaS technologies can, we leverage APIs, we go to websites, we extract text uh, from PDF documents. We can automatically collect weather data and flu surveillance data. I mean, all these things are commonly used in industry, but not widely used in public health. The other area that I think is important that's non-infectious related is opioids. That issue totally come to the forefront in the pandemic in the form of overdoses. And as I've studied this this situation and this epidemic over time, you know, we had this prescribing epidemic and pain is the fifth vital sign. And now we've had these settlements and FDA finally clamping down in the use of these pharmaceuticals and prescription drug management systems too. But the epidemic has shifted to street drugs and contaminants of street drugs, namely fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. So SAS has a response team for opioids and we're looking at the wide swath of how we as a company can support law enforcement, whether it be characterizing the shipments of opioids that are seized and or trafficked, characterizing those fentanyl analogs, looking at the cartel stamps, looking at recidivism and other indicators, even social vulnerability index to determine the pockets of the population that are most vulnerable, Mm -hmm. all the way through to predictive analytics and public health to better position naloxone therapeutics, treatment centers, measure the efficacy of those treatment centers, and equip those first responders with naloxone and track and monitor the efficacy or aversion the prevention of overdoses in society. So attacking this problem, I think the way that SAS is using a solution matrix, using statistical services and trying to hit all of the different agencies and entities that work on this problem is really critical. And this is one that I think our society is going to be wrestling with for a long time. Thank you. Yeah. Substance abuse is, um, mental health is a huge challenge. Substance abuse is a challenge. Uh, Behavioral health, we're going to continue to see that impact in the coming years um, as it relates to pandemic consequences. And it's a lot. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't want to sound depressive because these problems are really big. You know, if you think about some of the the positives that have come out of the pandemic, never before have we shared information so freely mm-hmm. from a research standpoint. You know, and I, I see now so many journals opening up literature on all sorts of other subjects. Think epidemiology being recognized as a strong science. And now all of these undergraduate majors emerging around public health, all of this is tremendously exciting and public health finally getting the funding it deserves. Mm-hmm. So I'm still really optimistic, despite the fact that the work is hard. I think we're heading in the right direction. And 
you know, hopefully people like us can keep contributing to that. I love the fact that we are seeing an increase in funding. We potentially have the capacity to more effectively do something like contact tracing in the future for our next pandemics. How can we learn more about your work at SAS, your department, your team, and then also about your consulting work? Oh, yes. Um, LinkedIn is a great way to connect with me. All my contact information is on there. I talk often conferences and we do webinars at SAS. Um, We're going to be at the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiology Conference. Um, We're also going to be at the ASTO Tech Expo in May and of course American Public Health Association Conference. So I'm really excited to hopefully, as long as BA2 doesn't wreak havoc on us, engage with people face-to-face and continue some of these really valuable conversations. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome.